Welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Nino Scalia. Our website is jmp.princeton.edu, and our Twitter handle is at Madison Program. It's great to have you with us. Hello, and welcome back to Madison's Notes. I'm your host, Nino Scalia, and our guest today is Mary Eberstadt. Mary Eberstadt holds the Panula Chair in Christian Culture at the Catholic Information Center and is a Senior Research Fellow at the Faith and Reason Institute in Washington, D.C. Her latest book and the topic for our conversation today is Primal Screams, How the Sexual Revolution Created Identity Politics. Her other books include It's Dangerous to Believe, How the West Really Lost God, and Adam and Eve After the Pill. Mrs. Eberstadt's writing has appeared in many magazines and journals. Her 2010 novel, The Loser Letters, about a young woman in rehab struggling with atheism, was adapted for stage and premiered at Catholic University in fall of 2017. Seton Hall University awarded Mary Eberstadt an honorary doctorate in humane letters in 2014. During the administration of President Ronald Reagan, she was speechwriter to Secretary of State George Shultz and a special assistant to Ambassador Jean Kirkpatrick at the United Nations. Her work can be found on her website, maryeberstadt.com, and you can find a link to her website in the show notes. I encourage everyone to visit that. Mary Eberstadt, welcome to Madison's Notes. Thank you, Nino. Thank you for having me. Let's get right into it and start with the sexual revolution. In some ways, what you describe as the beginning. What was the sexual revolution and what was it a revolt against? So the sexual revolution gets jump-started in the early 1960s uh, with a technological shock, which is the availability of the birth control pill. And what is hard to remember now, looking back on it, is that the arguments that were made on behalf of the revolution were optimistic arguments. In other words, people said, this will help marriages. This meaning the widespread adoption of artificial contraception. This will result in fewer abortions. And for reasons we can discuss later, the opposite happened over time. Instead, the sexual revolution ushered in an age of unprecedented divorce, family shrinkage, family breakdown, and of course, abortion. And this is still the backdrop against which all of us operate today. If anything, matters have gotten worse because of the compounding effect of all of these changes over generations. And so the book Primal Screams is uh, an attempt to connect the dots between that very formative sexual revolution and the kinds of social problems that we see in America today. So this revolution leads to what you call in the book, the great scattering. What can you tell us about this great scattering? So I think one thing that's important to understand, Nino, that most people do not understand is that the world we're living in is very different from the one inhabited by our ancestors up until the minute before yesterday. And what I mean is that in that earlier world, people had robust networks of kinship 
They had many relatives to whom they could turn. But we have seen, again, a, a diminution of human networks brought on by the sexual revolution and the shrinkage of the family and other factors that we can talk about. The result of this is that all of us, most of us have fewer people in our lives to whom we can turn, to whom we can learn from in a protected environment, meaning the family. As you know, there's a lot in Primal Screams about social learning and how it takes place. No one is born knowing how to be a human being any more than uh, say monkeys are born knowing how to be monkeys. These are skills that are acquired. These are things that are learned. That's why I put a lot of animal science into the book, as you know, because I think the parallels are fascinating. We now understand that animals learn by watching their own. Yeah. They learn how to be dolphins by watching their mommy and daddy dolphin and their sibling dolphins. So my argument is that some of the social problems we are seeing today are coming about because we have unwittingly allowed the sexual revolution to disrupt our fundamental human networks. And with that disruption comes the disruption of fundamental protections that generations before us could take for granted and that we, with all of our material and other advances, no longer have. Yeah. So people are scattered. They're lonely. They're isolated. And man, as man is a social animal, we look for groups, right? We want to know who we are, where we fit in. And instead of finding those answers in the church or from our parents, like you said, we might, we find them now in the immutable characteristics of our identity. Is, is this what we mean by identity politics? Yes. So another way of saying that is that uh, about 20 years ago, uh, sociologist Robert Putnam uh, in a book called Bowling Alone, laid out compellingly the diminishing of social bonds in the United States. Everything from fewer boys joining the Cub Scouts <clears throat> to fewer adults going to bowling leagues or participating in church activities, etc. So this has been well known for some time. The reason it's important is that the question, who am I, is a universal question. And one way of answering it is to say, I'm a volunteer in the neighborhood soup kitchen, say. In other words, by reference to one's social ties. On a more profound level, one way of answering the question, who am I, is by reference to a transcendental order. To say, for example, I'm a child of God, which is what a Christian would say. That's my identity. And everything else about me is just an accidental property. With the diminishing of social bonds, the shrinkage of the family and secularization all at once, we have three big wrecking balls on that edifice of the self, on that edifice that answers the question, who am I? So without resort to those traditional ways of answering the question, people today, especially the young, I think are frantic to find some substitute identity, some other way of answering that question. And that's why I think we see the flight into these identitarian groups. I believe that conservatives and traditionalists have not understood this very well. Mm. It is very common to look at that 
look at what's going on among young people and say, you're snowflakes, you're spoiled millennials, uh, et cetera. I don't see things that way at all. What I see is something frantic, a frantically performed desire to belong in a world where many people no longer belong in a, a strong way to their families, their communities, their religious organizations, if any. So there is, I think, a direct connection between what the sexual revolution did to many homes and many communities and what we are seeing now in the streets of America and on the campuses of America, where desperate people uh, take any kind of self-invention that's ready to hand and say, okay, this is my identity instead. The book was a lot of fun for me. In addition to being very insightful, it was fun. And it was fun because I used it as sort of a springboard for a little sociological survey of my own. I, I would text friends and say, just this, who are you? And I would see how they would respond. And I was, a, no, I wasn't astounded. Actually, it was more or less what I expected. One person referenced place. One person, not the same person, referenced religion. One person, not the same person, mentioned their family relationships. All the other descriptors were transient. I'm young. I'm this profession. I have this hobby or racial, immutable. I'm a woman. I'm black. I'm, I'm Asian. That, that, was, that was striking to me. That's fascinating. Thank you for doing that. If we put out a second edition, I will want to include that in a footnote. Yeah, I, absolutely. More than anecdotal evidence that points to the way people have changed answering that question, who am I? Yeah, I, I think uh, obviously this was just a few texts with friends, but uh, as they say, the plural of anecdotes is data. So um, <laughs> it would be an in interesting to do a larger scale study of that. Now, as you point out, identity politics is in a way a bit of a misnomer. What has been treated as a predominantly political phenomenon is, as you say, pre-political, primal, as the title of the book puts it. Could you say a little more about this primal element that we see? So before we belong to the state, we belong to smaller communities and the smallest and most important of those is the family. If you undercut the family, you leave people feeling that they have to attach somewhere. You know, there is such a thing as attachment theory. It's uh, somewhat in bad odor these days, but the idea that, you know, infants need a certain amount of time with mom or the other figures to whom they're attached or else things go badly wrong. Well, I think that the experiments on which that line of thought were based, which had to do with depriving monkeys of their maternal figures and then seeing that they end up with lives of dysfunction, uh, those experiments are, <laughs> tell us something about ourselves. What we don't realize, Nino, is that Humanity after the sexual revolution is running this kind of experiment on ourselves. And there is evidence everywhere that it's not going well, especially among the young. You know, even before COVID, there was shocking new data about the rise in mental illness, especially among Zoomers and millennials. At the other end of the life spectrum, we have loneliness studies, which have proliferated in sociology and are mainly about older people who are lonely because they no longer have family or they didn't stop to have a family. 
But increasingly, sociologists are looking at younger people and finding that there is pathological loneliness there as well. Uh, in 2020, to add some more evidence, the rate of drug overdoses was higher than it had ever been in a 12-month period, yeah. higher than it had ever been, even at the height of the opioid crisis. Now, all of these are warning signs. Um, there are other warning signs we could talk about. Say the Me Too movement, I think, was a gigantic warning sign. <clears throat> they are signs that something about the way we have come to live has run amok. And to say that is not to point backward to some uh, <clears throat> idyllic time. It's not to point back to the 1950s uh, or otherwise try to go back in time. There, there is no perfect time, but we are saddled with signature problems that the generations before us did not have to wrestle with and we do. And I dedicate my work to the idea that speaking about these things plainly and connecting the dots in the right way will actually spare some future people the kind of suffering that we see around us. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about one of the places where we see this problem perhaps most clearly, boys and girls. You say men are becoming more like women and women are becoming more like men. And the implication is obvious. The two are not the same. It means something to be a man, and that is different from what it means to be a woman. So what does it mean to be a man, and what does it mean to be a woman? Well, there are libraries that could be written about those questions, but I'll try to answer simply because when I think of that difference, I think of a difference in characteristic virtues. To be a good man is to be a protector, to use one's superior strength in a way that helps other people, helps protect, especially smaller and weaker people. Now, we all know that this is not the way a lot of men behave these days, but in my mind, all men face a choice. They can be predators or they can be protectors, and a good man is a protector. About femininity, I think the corresponding virtue there is nurture. Nurture is by definition self-sacrificing and it is something that women are uniquely gifted at. What I think we're seeing is that as the sexual revolution does its work and as fewer people attach and form families in the first place, these virtues are even less well understood than they used to be because who needs them? Yeah. I mean, young women are being raised to be told that they are interchangeable units in uh, the market economy with men, right? Men are bringing new difficulties of their own into the world, not, not by their doing, but the fact that so many are growing up in fatherless homes means that we are now seeing generations of men who have been largely raised by women. Hmm. What might that mean? What, how might that make them different than the men who came before them? Um, we could talk about this for hours. I think one result of that is a, a rise in anger. Another result, of course, is that never having had a protective male figure in front of you makes it less likely that you learn the behaviors that will help you to become that person. So that's my short disquisition on masculinity and femininity. No, that, that's, that's wonderful. 
In Japan, the hikikimori. In South Korea, the new hermits. In America, the vanishing American adult, more casually, incels. In China, and this is the part where I get ridiculed for my pronunciation of Chinese words, the Xiongyan, leftover men. Around the world, a considerable swath of men are single, unemployed, addicted to pornography, and have no future to speak of. What's going on, and why is this a problem? What's going on is that when men are not put in charge of something or put themselves in charge of some positive project, primarily the family, they deteriorate. And that's what we are seeing all over the materially advanced nations of the world. They have lost their vocation. They've also not been taught by the dominant culture. I can't speak for Japan and China here, but for the, the West, they, young men are being taught <clears throat> things that are absolutely inimical to being a happy young man. They are being taught that they can't hold the door open for women, that uh, women are there to compete with them and not to be uh, protected and cherished by them. And these kinds of social messages, like the social message of toxic masculinity, yeah. um, are, are themselves toxic. And it's no wonder that we're seeing so much dysfunction among young men who then just take the default road, as you say, into pornography, into video games, uh, into the basement that some never leave. This again is damage that gets laid at the doorstep of the sexual revolution and also at the feet of people who, as the bad news about that revolution has come out, nevertheless looked the other way or worse, defended it and pretended that the empirical record of damage was not there. These young men are, are the latest in a long series of casualties <clears throat> that polite opinion pretends not to see that progressives and liberals deny that even some free market conservatives deny. And this world is not going to get better unless we address that damage and understand exactly where it's coming from. It seems to me that in some ways, we're, we're this is a perverse use of the word, we're lucky in the sense that the problem right now for young men is that they're sedated, uh, right? Video games, pornography, sitting around doing nothing. It's like Soma in a brave new world. They just sit around doing nothing. That's not the default, right? It's not the default that young men who are angry will sit around high playing video games. It can go a different direction there. And I certainly hope it won't. But this is certainly a problem that I think we need to reckon with soon. Nino, I would argue that it already has gone in a different direction. Hmm. And that we saw this in the street protests and riots in 2020. Hmm. In summer of 2020, there were over 10,000 incidents of, quote, unrest across the United States. And of those, <clears throat> and of those, some 500 turned violent. This is acting out on a scale that we have not seen before in this country. And although it began as a protest against street uh, police brutality and racism, it quickly devolved into something else, which was pandemonium and violence. Hmm. And 
I think one deep reason for that violence, again, is that we have undisciplined um, young men with no models before them to tell them how young men are supposed to behave, combined with this value-free, permissive, dominant culture that does not point them toward a better way or reprimand them when they are, say, in the streets throwing rocks at night. Yeah. It was very interesting during those protests to see that <clears throat> to see that it was not only statues of Confederates that were being torn down. In Washington, D.C., where I am, a statue of Mahatma Gandhi was defaced. Elsewhere, uh, around the country, statues of town fathers were pulled down of anything that looked like a male authority figure. Now, what does that tell you? It, tells me that there is a free-floating rage out there against male authority figures. And what's really interesting is that there are fewer such figures in the lives of young men than there ever have been before in American history. So this rage is partly about deprivation, or so I would reason. Yeah, it's about deprivation. They don't have those, those men in their lives personally and we keep tearing down statues of George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and Christopher Columbus and even Frederick Douglass and Mahatma Gandhi, they won't even have these men in, in theory, so to speak. They won't even be able to walk down a street and see a bronze cast George Washington. The role models will just be totally gone, non-existent. And this is not well understood. Another thing that is not well understood is that at a time when a lot of people just point their fingers and say white supremacism, white supremacism is America's problem, <clears throat> Christianity is America's problem, they don't realize that the actual white supremacists out there, um, the actual you know Nietzschean believing racists, uh, small in number though they are, can't abide Christianity. Yeah. They are anti-Christian. They are pro-abortion because they think that abortion helps keep down the number of uh, undesirable types. Um, so the fact that white nationalism and Christianity are just in a head-on collision is somehow lost in this very misleading discussion that the nation keeps having about what's the fundamental problem out there. And, and I find that very interesting too. Yeah. So I said we'd talk about boys and girls. We've talked about boys. Let's talk about girls. And here's here's how I want to do this. I'm going to introduce you to a young woman. This is not a it's not a real young woman in the sense that this is not her name, but I think you'll recognize the type. And I, I know I certainly do. Her name is Sarah. And she's a 27-year-old woman from a decent-sized town in North Carolina. Her family is comfortably middle class, not wealthy, but she never really wanted. She got good SAT scores and attended a good liberal arts school where she got good grades and landed a well-paying job at a good consulting firm in New York City. She goes out on the weekends with a few friends, has occasional casual sex, flits in and out of relationships, and if you asked her if she were happy, she would probably say yes. Her friends would probably say the same. But each Sunday, usually after a bottomless mimosa brunch with friends, she develops a case of the Sunday scaries and would admit, if you asked her then, that something is not quite right. She can't put her finger on it, but she feels vaguely unsettled, vaguely unhappy, and vaguely lonely. 
What would you say to her? I would say that she has been misled by her culture. I think it's a poignant portrait that you just drew and it applies to a great many young women who have been told by their schools, sometimes by their parents, that the most important thing is succeeding in the paid marketplace and figuring out the family stuff later. That advice is the opposite of what goes into long-term happiness because that advice, if it's followed long enough, leads to a, a world in which, oops, I forgot the baby. That is, it's too late. And I think this is something that has happened to generations of women now who have absorbed partly the, the message of feminism, of course. And exactly the opposite is what we should be telling them. We should be telling them, uh, no, not to you know get pregnant at 14. We should be telling them though, that their chances for uh, children evaporate far earlier than they do for men. That the most important thing in life is not making partner in a law firm. The most important thing in life is instead finding someone you love with whom you can have a family or otherwise contribute to a shared community. So young women are getting the message that they're just atomized bots, you know, um, on a par with young men. And this, this is not true. By all accounts, sex has never been easier to find. Right? Dating apps, a promiscuous hookup culture, birth control, co-ed dorms, the list goes on and on. And yet Americans are having less sex. Fewer teens are having sex than ever before. What's going on? Answer one, pornography is going on. Mm. Answer two, there is a pernicious message making the rounds in the name of environmentalism, that the trouble for the planet is people, that people are a toxin on the planet. And that as a consequence, young people should not have children. This is a corruption of environmentalism, of real environmentalism, which I am all for. But this corrupt uh, message, I think is infiltrating uh, young people on a scale that one wouldn't expect. And what they need to understand, again, if loneliness is the problem out there, having families is the solution. And loneliness is very much the problem for Zoomers and millennials, I believe the Zoomers are said to be the loneliest generation of all, even more than old people. That tells you something striking. So we have a situation where young people in many cases are withdrawing from the world at exactly the time when what they need most is to connect with it. Obviously the internet is part of this, you know, obviously uh, addiction to games and other stuff on the internet is part of this. But the atomization and isolation uh, that these young people are part of actually predates the internet. Identity politics and its declarations of not being able to trust the rest of the world begins in 1977, well before the internet. 1977, just as the sexual revolution is really taking off suggestively enough. This is when we see this signature fracturing of society that we're trying to describe here. Uh, I'd like to talk about the Me Too movement. 
here's Time Magazine. The groundbreaking Me Too movement upended the public conversation about women's issues around the world and elevated the global consciousness surrounding the obstacles women encounter in their daily lives, both personal and professional. For the first time ever, the world has been put on notice that these once fledgling women's movements were not to be ignored. And people listened. End quote. This is a movement of freedom. We are freeing women from the oppressive patriarchy for the first time ever. Right? Well, I have several thoughts about that, Nina. <laughs> <laughs> um, the first is to state the obvious, women have always had to deal with the problem that there are predatory men out there. This came through loud and clear in the Me Too movement. But what was surprising about that was that most of the women in the Me Too movement were the children of the elite institutions, right? They were the kind of people who could go to the kind of schools that got them jobs in Hollywood and the better journalism and newsrooms and places like that. Why were these women of all women so clueless and so taken by surprise about the idea of predatory men mm. being able to get at them. I am not blaming the victim here. I'm saying this after reading many, many accounts of, by young women telling me two stories. What's surprising about those accounts is how unprepared they were for the world that they have entered. It's that for all the money spent on their educations, no one seems ever to have thought to tell them, look, there are certain common sense principles in life, right? Don't go to a man's hotel room at one o'clock in the morning, even if he's your boss, especially if he's your boss. Uh, be on the lookout for these kinds of controlling behaviors. I think what's happened in the Me Too movement is that there are many men out there who are able to convince women that they're good guys because they're quote, good on abortion, right? Mm -hmm. Because they're pro-choice. And by putting forward that idea, they take women in who really should know better. I mean, what, what does that idea actually say? It says, PS, if you get pregnant, I won't marry you, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. That's the translation of that right. into plain English. So this lack of preparation for the world is also about, again, uh, the shrinkage of the family. I was really struck reading those accounts at how few of the women in these terrible situations or these allegedly terrible situations, because <clears throat> I think there was a mix of both, yeah. but how few of them had protective male figures in their lives. I didn't read a single account in which someone said, and then the morning after my boss did that, I called my dad. Hmm or I called my brother, or I called my uncle, um, <clears throat> uh, I called my uncle so-and-so. What does that tell you? It tells you that the shrinkage of the family is having real life repercussions. And I don't mean that we should devolve into a Hobbesian war out there in which protective men get to do whatever they want to do to men who have allegedly done bad things. No, we, we have a society, we have a rule of law here and we need to stick to that. My observation instead is that 
the uh, disappearance of protective male figures has now gone so far that young women in that Me Too situation didn't even think to invoke such a figure. Hmm. There were a couple of stories involving celebrities in which boyfriends played a protective role. Um, one of them went to one of the most notorious uh, predators in Hollywood and said, knock it off. And there, were, there was one other story like that. And beyond that, if you only read the Me Too literature, you would think that young women were being launched into the world like spores with no support and not knowing where they're going to land and no one to steer their way. And that again is more poignant fallout of what we as a society are doing to ourselves. I recall in college, we would read you know, Hobbes and Locke, and we would talk about the state of nature. And inevitably, usually conservative students would say, this doesn't exist. There is no state of nature. We've kind of created the state of nature here in the 21st century. We take young people and we say, be free. Welcome to the world. You don't know who you are because we don't know who you are. Be whoever you want to be. We think that's a compassionate, inspiring message to give to, give to young people. Be whoever you want to be. But they want to know, well, who should I be? How should I live? Who am I? What am I supposed to do? It's cruel to withhold that answer. Yes, and part of that is that people want to be proud of themselves and proud of where they come from in a good way, not in a chauvinistic way, but in a very natural way because they want to belong to things that they can uh, love and admire. And here we get into the problem of what uh, several decades of education, especially mm -hmm. elite education has been doing um, essentially, it's been telling young people, you have nothing to be proud of. Your country is racist, imperialist, bigoted. Your fellow citizens are worse than Neanderthals. Anyone who voted for Trump um, doesn't deserve to be in polite company. Uh, it's this endlessly negative litany about America, and about organized religion, of which many terrible things are also said, as you know. And the problem, again, is that this is taking away the inheritance of people who deserve it. Mm. Anyone born into the West deserves to know about both the problems and the grandeurs of Western civilization. And similarly, uh, most of the, the greatest artistic treasures in Western history cannot be understood without explaining Judaism and Christianity. These are all things that people can be proud of, but they have to know about them in order to be proud of them. They, they can't just be robbed blindly of them and then be expected to understand. So that's another kind of remedial work that needs doing out there yeah. that would also diminish some of the atomization and the fracturing that we're seeing because if people could understand, hey, there are great things about America. I'm an American. You're an American. You might be a Democrat. I might be a communist. But, you know, we can be proud of some things here. That kind of unity would go a long way toward restoring what we need, I think. How much blame should we assign to capitalism for these trends we've been talking about? And I, I don't so much mean the technological innovations that capitalism brings so well, both for good and ill, right? Obviously, cars, 
the internet, the pill, technology like this contributes. But I mean the sort of hyper-capitalistic mentality that treats human beings as units of economic production. So for example, if you ask a young woman, why is the pill good? You'll probably get an answer, and I've heard this answer before, so I know this is the case, an answer is something like this. Well, the pill allows women to spend more time in the workforce, which in turn increases GDP, which allows women to earn more money, and so on and so forth. So no blame for capitalism, some blame, lots of blame, one cheer, two cheers. What do you think? Well, my first point would be to what you just said, um, that argument about why the pill is good brings up the rhetorical question, um, are, aren't there times when money isn't the answer? Yeah, That's something that we don't put out there often enough. Now about capitalism, uh, capitalism is simply the removal of impediments to commercial activity, or so I understand it. And as such, it does phenomenal things. Um, it creates life-saving drugs. It also produces the opioid crisis. Yeah. That is to say, capitalism is morally neutral, but that we must be discerning consumers is something that we have not learned to do very well. If there is a fault in capitalism, I think it is that it is not intrinsic to capitalism. It's that not putting that message out there means that people get into the habit of treating other people like commodities, right? We have sexual consumerism. Um, well, I like this one for this and this, and I like that one for this and this. And it becomes a kind of unconscious habit, I think, in a capitalist society to bring that consumerist attitude toward places where it has no business being. And that is something that educators and parents need to be aware of. Would you give a similar answer to the question that goes something like, well, how much of the blame here belongs to liberalism, small l, liberalism? I know you're very familiar with the arguments gaining ground on the right, the critiques of liberalism as a sort of totalizing ideology of freedom and individuality that rips families and churches and nations apart. So I, I suppose the question is, is more about the sexual revolution's relationship to liberalism. That is to say, do the seeds of liberalism grow inevitably into the sort of radical sexual individual individuality? I shouldn't be bound to kids or family. I should be able to divorce when I want, change genders when I want, and so on. I don't know about that inevitably. So I would just put that on the shelf. What I would observe <clears throat> is that liberals bear a great deal of responsibility for what has happened to this country and liberals of different kinds. First of all, there are feminists, the great majority of whom have taught young women for decades now that the baby and the mother can be enemies. Yeah. Right? To get rid of children who have delivered this very, this couldn't be more starkly anti-nurturing language at people who are designed to be nurturers. So that's one problem. Another problem is uh, feminism also capitulated on pornography. I am actually old enough to remember that there were a few feminists who opposed pornography and said so, qua women, this is bad for women. Some of them even said this is also bad for men. But for reasons that I don't entirely understand, today's feminism 
turns a blind eye toward all of that and instead embraces pornography as sex positivity, which is very ironic because it means that they're just going along with what some of the boys want to do. Um, so that's also problematic. About liberalism otherwise, the largest, the largest problem I think is that, as mentioned, the empirical toll of the sexual revolution has been growing by the year ever since all of this started. And liberalism continues to pretend there's nothing to see here. Mm. Liberalism ignores the plight of fatherless children all across the country and insists that it's not a problem. And liberalism also ignores suffering in other forms that's been brought on by the revolution and its aftermath. So I do think there's a lot to answer for. On the other hand, we need tomorrow's liberals to understand the nature of our deepest social problems and to get them on board with what can we do about this. Have and you I think there are signs that it's starting to change. I, th I think there are signs of things shifting because young people especially are intensely aware of where some of these problems are coming from. Hmm. Young people uh, say within conservative ranks tend to be more socially conservative, more pro-life than their elders. Yeah. And that's a hopeful sign. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think that's right. Have these uh, primal screams grown louder during the age of COVID? Sure, of course. I mean, COVID was like pouring gasoline onto a fire, mm. taking people who are already isolated and not playing well with others and making them <laughs> stay in rooms unable to interact with others uh, has been very destructive. Um, but in a way, I think, you know, that the pandemic also shows where the problem is because everybody in the world is aware of how hard it's been to live with this pandemic and what it has done to our normal associations. But everybody has not been aware of how big the problem of loneliness was before and how big the problems of anxiety and related psychiatric trouble among young people has been before. So we are at a moment, I think, where we can take some of the, the negativity of what we've had to live through and hold it up to the light and say, what does this tell us? Yeah, uh, you primarily focus on the identity politics of sex. Uh, how do the identity politics of race fit into this picture? Well, of course, racism, America's original sin is still here. And I disagree with some of my fellow traditionalists who, who say that mockingly, uh, as if racism doesn't exist. Of course, racism exists. Um, but it does not exist on anything like the scale that the dominant voices in our culture say. Um, it, this you know, critical race theory and stuff that is being poured into schools which has generated a backlash that I hope we see a lot more of, again, has been making people ashamed of their country, ashamed if they have white skin. Um, this has been taken farther than anyone would have guessed it could ever get, especially as of the, the election of a black president, hmm. uh, Barack Obama, 
who would ever have thought that this this storyline, according to which America is irredeemably structurally and permanently racist, could even get off the ground. Um, the fact that it has, I think, tells us less about residual guilt out there, let alone white nationalism, uh, and more about what exactly has been going on in elite universities, especially in the humanities, for the last several decades. Uh, when I was at such a place um, in the 1980s and left to do other things. Everybody shared the general sense that, oh, what's going on in gender studies and what's going on in these other boutique parts of the university are just that, they're boutique, you know? And nobody ever thought that they would escape and infect the culture at large, but that is what happened. And there's, there's a big story there about how that was accomplished. I don't mean that in a conspiratorial way. I think the playbook that Gramsci, the neo-Marxist handed down was followed more closely than the rest of us realized by people in the academy. So there's a lot to look at there. And again, new reasons for hope because one thing that COVID did was make at least some people aware of what their kids were studying mm. in high school and university. Um, mm. And that is salutary because I don't think most of the parents of America knew uh, what their kids were studying in the humanities these days. So it's good that it's out there. Yeah, right. Sunlight is the best disinfectant. Okay, we have time for one last question, which is kind of three questions. So I'm cheating here a little bit. But this is the political question and, and what can be done. So a three-pronged question. What is the worst case scenario? What is the best case scenario? What is the most likely <laughs> scenario? Well, the most likely scenario is somewhere between the worst case and the best <laughs> case. <laughs> um, let's see. Positive things that could happen. Uh, Roe versus Wade goes away. And the value of human life is understood in a new way in this country. That would be a great thing. Um, second positive thing let's see what other countries are doing. I mean, I'm not one of these people who's made a pilgrimage to Hungary and I can't tell you all about Viktor Orban, <laughs> but I can say that if Hungary is finding success with these policies that are designed to make it easier on the family, like the fact that if you have four children and you're a woman, you never have to pay income tax again, for example, if these policies are actually having an effect or if the policies of other countries are having an effect and making it easier to form families and have families, let's look at them. Let's let our uh, open-minded um, legislators look at those things and try and produce something like them. Uh, third, a third positive thing. When you hear about the nuns and the rise of, you know, uh, people who have no religious attachment that is counterbalanced by something else, which is real signs of religious renewal, mm. including on campuses. There are all kinds of organizations that did not used to exist on campuses in America. I have in mind things like the Thomistic Institute, Thomistic Circles run by the Dominican Order, which now has a presence on every Ivy League campus and, and many more. 
or the Fellowship of Catholic University Students, which has completely taken off in the last 10 years. And it is now on over 100 American campuses. So these are signs that people are interested, newly interested in avoiding some of the damage that I talk about in Primal Screams and actively interested in cultural renewal. And there are many more examples that I could cite like that. I find it very heartening that most of these are emanating from the young demographic yeah. because that's what we'll need to turn some of this trouble around. And that is the case for hope um, and optimism but it has to begin with naming things with the right names and understanding how we got here. And that's what I'm trying to help with in however modest a way. One of the reviewers of your book referred to you as a latter-day Daniel Patrick Moynihan. I, and I don't think that's overstating the case. Uh, if or when we're able to get some of this under control, uh, younger generations will look back at your work and point to it as instrumental in uh, getting us on a better track. So Mary Eberstadt, Thank you so much for joining us today on Madison's Notes. Thank you, Nino. Thanks for that very kind conclusion. Well, there you have it, Madisonians. The great Mary Eberstadt on how the sexual revolution gave us identity politics. Mary is always very much worth reading and hearing from, and Primal Screams is certainly no exception. I encourage everyone to get a copy and visit her website to learn more about her work. Again, you'll find a link to her website in the show notes. As always, please be sure to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes and share the show with your friends and family. That's all I have for you today. I hope you and yours have a very happy Thanksgiving, and I hope to have you back with us next time here on Madison's Notes. <laughs>